Um, Carmen Dahlberg, where are you? Thank you so much for leading the charge for outreach for Angel Tree. I have to tell you, there is an immense, I mean, I'm telling you, there's an immense amount of logistics that goes on in, 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 in assigning gifts and routes and, and everything that goes behind that. So we want to keep doing that. Carmen has thought about other potential touch points and events throughout the year, so it's not just a transactional thing, but we're trying to build up a relationship for the sake of the gospel. Thank you so much, Carmen, for doing that. Really appreciate your leadership on that. I had up here, and they, oh, here they are. I have right here a very, very fancy schedule. Mark, can you hand, help me hand these out? If you do not have a schedule of what a week of church life looks like in 2023. Would you raise your hand? Um, here, Ryan, would you? Ryan, you're always helping everything, so why not this, okay? Uh, we have a new schedule. Uh, we've been talking about it a lot, being overly redundant, but we want you to know that we put a lot of time and effort and thought into this new schedule. I had special yellow paper sent to my house by Mr. Amazon because I want it to be like a highlighter. Uh, I want us to also have some symbolism. Jesus is the light of the world. Those who walk in the light will no longer rather uh, walk in the darkness. And if you are gonna be serious about growing as a follower of Christ, you gotta throw yourself into the schedule. First Wednesday night is women's ministry. 6.30, a half hour shift to help people who are coming off work to get there. If they get off at six, there's plenty of time. Then Tuesday nights will be, I'm sorry, not Tuesday, second Wednesday night of the month will be men. And then the third Wednesday, we will have a church-wide prayer and praise meeting followed by breaking fast together with the meal that the Dahlbergs will be setting up for us every month. All right? I'm gonna be saying a whole lot more about that in coming weeks because I just think it's super important we all fully commit and fully invest in this schedule for the sake of, of growing in our walk with God. Amen? Amen? All right. Father, thank you for this time we have to worship. And those words we sang, make my heart believe resonate in my soul. Lord, I need you. We need you to work by your spirit in our hearts so that Jesus Christ is seen for who he really is. Um, precious, the treasure of treasures, um, the one in whom our life has now been hidden by your grace. So Father, I pray. Um, I pray for this message, Lord. Um, I, I try to think of all the kinds of people that will be in for a sermon Convince people, cynics, people that are hurting, people that are uh, arrogant, Lord. But now I'm even trying to think of our precious children who will be with us. So, Lord, help this word speak to every person here, wherever, wherever they are in age, wherever they are in life circumstance, wherever they are in faith. And I ask this all by the power of your spirit for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we... I saw when uh, Nick said 40 minutes, 50 minutes, 60 minutes. I will not be 60 minutes. We can smell the food that uh, we're going to eat in a little while. So let's get right at it. But let me, before I begin, let me ask you all a question. And I really want 100% participation here. All right? How many here love the great state of Michigan? How many here love the great state of Michigan? Oh, come on. Come on. Huh? Okay. Thank you, Vincent. Thank you. 
How many here, uh, one more time, how many of you love the great state of Michigan? Okay. Do you mind if I start off with a little Michigan history? I want to talk to you about one of the many amazing events in the history of the great state of Michigan. Amazing events. There, there's so many, but this one's recent. This one's recent. It happened on a cool, crisp autumn Saturday. On the 26th of November, in the year of our Lord, 2022, there's 106,000 people watching, millions more watching live on TV. And on that day, the mighty Mason Blue of the University of Michigan soundly thrashed that team from Ohio with the ugly red jerseys and that really weird looking logo. Anybody remember the score? Say it again. I thought it was 45-20, but, but it was bad, right? It was bad. Now, in that epic event of Michigan history, you ought to appreciate, there were three responses to that day. Response number one was hostility. Snide comments like, it's about time they beat him twice in a row. How long has it been? Or, hey, what's their, back, what's their face-to-face record, Michigan and Ohio State, in the last 20 years? Never mind in the entire history of the series. Snide comments like, it's about time Harbaugh, Harbaugh earned his keep. Stuff like that, right? Hostility, just reeking with hostility. And that was mainly, of course, Ohio State fans, but even some hard-hearted Michigan State fans championed a position of hostility. Maybe a Notre Dame fan or two. I don't know. But that was one response. And that comment from the crowd leads to the second response that we saw. Indifference. Indifference. There were maybe a few wives, a few girlfriends, and lest I be accused of being sexist here, maybe a few husbands or boyfriends. Your spouse was watching the game and and said to, to the other spouse, babe, you don't understand. It was an incredible victory. They crushed them. To which the response was by the spouse, hey, that's great. Hey, don't forget to pick up the dog food later on when you hit the store for me. People who did not appreciate the magnitude of such an epic event in the history of Michigan. People who were so indifferent, they didn't even watch the game. Crazy, right? So what was the first response? Hostility. What was the second response? Indifference. But there was a third response by those who have been enlightened, okay? A response of joy, fists pumped, people leaping to their feet, throats hoarse with cheering, people singing the great fight song, Hail to the Victors, posting pictures and scores on social media, reading and rereading and watching and rewatching the clips and uh, summaries and all that. Just people who were entirely excited about the game, talking about it with others, especially those in category number one. Hey, what'd you think about the Michigan thrashing of Ohio State? Don't you want to talk about that? Now, those three responses of hostility, indifference, and joy are similarly reflected in a far more infinitely epic event the birth of Jesus Christ. And I would say 
are reflected to this day in some people's response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are three responses you will see, and that's what we're gonna see in the text. There is the response of hostility, which would be Herod. There is the response of indifference, which would be the Bible guys, chief priests and the scribes. And then there was a response, not just of joy, but of worship by these men known as Magi. So quite simply this morning, I wanna preach to you on responses to the king's birth. We are going through the Gospel of Matthew. The theme of the Gospel of Matthew is the king. We're in the first two chapters, the king's arrival, and today we're gonna look at three responses to the king's arrival. Y'all with me? All right, response number one, hostility. The wise men, and we're gonna come back to them, are looking for Jesus, verse two. Hearing about this, Herod asked the chief priests and scribes, the Bible guys, we'll come back to them as well, where the Christ was to be born. You can see that in verse four. Now, I think a little bit about Herod would be helpful to understand the magnitude of what's going on. Herod was both a brilliant man but also an extremely brutal man, just like world leaders of yesterday and today and as the Lord tarries tomorrow. He was brilliant. He was appointed by the occupying Roman forces to be the local king over the lands of Israel and Judah. In his earlier days, he's old now at this point, but he was a, was a skilled hand-to-hand combatant, skilled at rhetoric, a great public speaker, a skilled politician. And he also liked to help people when they were down and out. There were a few times when he just declared that all debts in the kingdom would be forgiven, something done today, debt forgiveness, which is really debt transfer, but that's a whole other thing. And one time there was a big famine, 25 AD, where he sold some of the exquisite uh, golden sculptures in the palace, raised money so that he could buy food for poor people. But it wasn't so much about compassion for people as it was controlling people. He also was just a a genius when it comes to building stuff, an architectural genius. He had little cities built with a view to people really being entertained. He built racetracks and massive theaters and things like that. But again, it wasn't so much about a concern for people. It was about curing and keeping their favor so he would not have any problems keeping in power. And that was the rub with this guy. Brilliant, but intensely brutal. He was massively, obsessively neurotic and obs- about keeping power, about keeping power in his little kingdom. He was, he was just neurotic about it, paranoid about it. The least threat, the least threat real or perceived, he would snuff out with the use of overwhelming, brutal force. History is replete with examples. Let me give you a few of them. He had several wives. One of them was Miriam, and Miriam, he heard, might be involved in a plot to usurp his authority. He has his wife executed. He had several kids with all his wives. At least three of them were executed because he thought maybe they were trying to take power from him. He had one of his sons drowned. A lot of people liked him because they would get something from him, but a lot of people really disliked him 
because he was such a brutal tyrant. And he was so, <laughs> this, is, this is a weird story, but it, this is what I've heard, read from many sources, that he was so worried that people would not mourn on the day that he died, you know, because now this, dead, this, this tyrant is dead. On the day of his, that he thought he was gonna die, he's on his deathbed in that, in, that, in that season, he had all the notable people of Jerusalem brought together and executed publicly. That way, when he died, he could guarantee at least somebody would be mourning and not everybody would be rejoicing. That's some kind of sick mind, right? So this is Herod. When Herod, if you drop your eyes down to verse three, heard about the birth of baby Jesus, he was, as the text says, troubled. He was troubled. The word could be translated terrified. And because he's troubled, because he's terrified, this man is getting ready to kick in brutal mode. Again, again, he can't stand the thought of his rule being challenged by anybody, even a baby. And he will do anything to eliminate that threat. Wait till we get to next week when we look at the weeping of Ramah. He went to brutal, brutal um, efforts to throw, thwart out, to snuff out any threat. Now, back in the text, he summons the wise men and wants them to tell them, wants them to tell him where Jesus was born, where Jesus is, so he can worship him. Look at verses seven and eight. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. To which we would say, liar, liar, pants on fire. Of course he doesn't want to worship Jesus. He wants to kill Jesus. That's Herod. What is Herod's posture towards Christ? A posture of what? A posture of hostility. And I would say this, that the hostility of Herod yesterday is reflective of hostility against Christ to this very day. And maybe not, may, maybe not as brutal, maybe it is in some cases, actually, we might dive into that next week, but what's clear is, and we, we just talked, we prayed about persecution of churches, of Christians and churches overseas, right, recently? But what's clear is in our own land, hostility against Christ, against the gospel of Christ, and the followers of Christ is increasingly on the rise. I would say this, uh, among higher learning, even K through 12 now, that's, things are said. Certainly in the entertainment complex, right? And among governmental authorities, it's on the rise. There, I don't think you could argue against this. There are things said against Jesus Christ, against the gospel of Jesus Christ, and against followers of Jesus Christ in, for instance, places of higher learning universities, that were they said against other religions and other religious followers, what would happen to them? Banished, gone, and all the rest. And that hostility comes in two forms. One, one form of hostility is outright rejection of Christ. 
with epithets like, go worship your sky, daddy. You know, that kind of thing. But another form of rejection that the world does is that they reshape and redefine Jesus according to our flesh. And then when you say, hey, that's not really Jesus, that's not really biblical, quite ironically, they say, according to the Jesus that they've reshaped, that's being very unchristlike. That's not being very loving. And so there's slander and there's caricature and all the rest. Now, I do want to remind us that when that happens, and it's happened to some of you, you've told me your stories, workplaces, schools, and otherwise. When that happens, do not play into the enemy's hand, okay? Do you know what the scripture says? That we're to be ready to give an answer for the reason of the hope that's within us, and how are we to do it? As bombastic jerks? No, with meekness and fear. Meekness isn't being weak, okay? In fact, we're to speak all the truth when we have the opportunity, right? But with fear, that is fear towards the living God, the one before whom we all will stand. Let me give you that passage a little bit longer in, in, in the verses around it. First Peter 3, verses 13 through 17. Now it says, Peter writes, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Now have no fear of them, don't be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense against, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet, you are to do it with gentleness and how? Respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So when you encounter hostility, don't be surprised. God said it would happen, right? He, he told us. We prayed about it in our prayer meeting this morning. Psalm 2, this is like the narrative of human history. Y'all with me? Narrative of human history. He writes, why do the nations rage? Verse one. And why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers of the, of the earth counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's against the Messiah. Saying, let us burst their cords asunder and cast the bands away. Something to that effect. That's what it says right there. So when it happens, remember, God told you it would happen. Don't wild out. He said it would happen. Does that mean we should just roll over? What do you think? No, we're called to proclaim the gospel. We're called to, to, to stand against wickedness and to seek to promote godliness, of course. But remember this. Because, because it does say in, a, I think it's Psalm, I can't remember which Psalm, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. So we're, we're, we're to move in that direction as much as we can. It says in 2 Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, repentance, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. But I just want us to recognize what Psalm 2 tells us, that there will be, there will be opposition. And I want you to notice Herod's opposition 
had others in the same position and posture of hostility. When Herod the king heard this, the text says, verse three, he was troubled, and what does it go on to say? What does it go on to say? Who else was troubled? And all Jerusalem with him was troubled. Now, why was that? Well, why do you think that the inhabitants of Jerusalem were troubled just like Herod was? Why do you think? Well, they knew that if Herod was gonna have a bad day, who else was gonna have a bad day? They're gonna have a bad day. But, as some commentators reminded us, some of them actually were benefiting from all that he was doing for them, right? He was currying favor. He was trying to, to, to have people who really liked him despite his brutality. And they didn't want the status quo disturbed because they stood to benefit from things, some things. At any rate, at any rate, what is clear is that the response of Herod to the birth of baby Jesus impacted the response of the citizens of Jerusalem to the birth of baby Jesus, so that in effect, Herod's hostility against Christ became their hostility against Christ. You say, does that happen today? Absolutely it does. Here's a few examples. How about there are students today who uncritically embrace the hostility of their professor against God and the things of scripture so that their hostility becomes their hostility. Hmm? Or how about this? Like many social media and entertainment consumers who uncritically embrace the hostility against God that they're constantly exposing themselves to. Huh? Or how about this? Many citizens un- uncritically, blindly embrace the hostility of government. Well, the government says it's legal, yeah, but what does God say about it, <laughs> right? Or people can, happens everywhere, uncritically embrace a political party blindly. Well, I just, I'm just supposed to be loyal, even though they might be proposing things that are, that are contrary to the will and way of God. So I just want to close out this first point, a strong point. Herod was hostile, and people were hostile to Christ. What's your response to Christ? Would you put yourself in the, in, in the camp of hostility? Consider Psalm 2 again as I close out point number one. Psalm 2 goes on to say, now be wise, be warned. Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. We don't usually put rejoicing and trembling together, but God does because when you see who he is, you, 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 you tremble, but you also rejoice. And then it goes on to say, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So what's the first response to Jesus? What is that response? Y'all, kids, are you with me? What's the first response? Hostility, anger, no way, he ain't for me. Now, response number two. This one is indifference. Indifference Well, let me put it this way. Hostility is an uglier response than indifference, right? But indifference is a far more dangerous, potentially dangerous response for a person who has that posture. And the reason is this. People who are hostile to Christ, they make no pretense of being right with God, do they? They don't give a rip. I don't even believe in God or whatever. They make no pretense about being right with God. People are hostile to God. But... 
Somebody who has a posture of indifference might delude themselves in their indifference and think, well, I, I, certainly I'm good with God, right? So it's a more dangerous position. That's why we all need to listen up, lest we be in that category. When Herod hears Christ was born, verse four, he assembles the Bible guys. Look at verse four. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, Bible guys indeed is what the chief priests and the scribes were. Chief priests, for instance, they knew the minutia of the sacrificial system inside and out. And the scribes, you know what they did hours every day? They made copies of the Old Testament line upon line, hour after hour, day upon day as their vocation. If they were to take um, a Bible class, they would have gotten an A++++. If there were ever a Bible knowledge edition of Jeopardy, bam, they would have been the first one to hit the buzzer. So when he asked him, hey, where's this Christ to be born? They don't need to do a Google search. They don't need to look through a concordance. They spit out right away Micah 5.2. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's pretty good, isn't it? I mean, just like that, they get the answer. They get it. That's really good, isn't it? But did that hit them? Did they all of a sudden smack each other's back and say, whoa, 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 do you know what just happened? We just realized the Christ has been born in Bethlehem of Judea. This is amazing. Let's follow him. Let's go seek him. Let's join the Magi in seeking to see him face to face. Do they do that? No. No, they decidedly did not. They had the right answer, did they not? But life went on for them just as usual. The birth of Christ made no difference in their lives practically. Commentator Daniel Doriani says this, sometimes those who most know the faith in the mind know at least in the heart. They should have joined the Magi and traveled to Bethlehem, end quote, and they did not. You know who these men exemplify? They exemplify the warning of 2 Timothy 3, 7, which talks about people always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Bible guys. They exemplify John 1, 11, that Jesus Christ came unto his own, the Jewish people, and his own did not receive him those most positioned to understand the significance of his coming and who he is and what he was going to do did not receive him. And it's just like a lot of people in the church today. Those who are so familiar with the truth that they're almost inoculated against it in their, here it is, indifference. You see, it's not enough to know the truth. You gotta act on the truth, right? You gotta act on the truth, family. They don't. And therefore, their life is no different than all the rest. So what's the second response? A response of 
indifference. And I close out the second point by just peeking forward to chapter three. Pastor Charles will be kicking off the new year. January 1st, we're gonna be meeting for worship, same time, just like always, New Year's Day. And he's gonna preach John, um, I'm sorry, Matthew 3, 1 through 12. And the last verse, John talking about Jesus says, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I believe, family, there is a winnowing going on right now in the body of Christ between wheat and chaff. Those who can confess the same thing, the right thing, but those who actually possess Jesus Christ. Indifference. And it's a fine thing to get winnowed out now instead of that time when he grabs his winnowing fork in the future. Now, number three. First response was what? Second response was? Now, third response is worship. This is, this is the best point of all. This is the one that's fun to preach. Now, I, I, <laughs> I don't want to get in the business of correcting Christmas songs, okay? Mary, did you know? Okay, Mary did know before anybody else, okay? An angel came there. Or how about, we three kings of Orient are, now known as we three kings. Uh, Wrong on a couple counts. Number one, we have no idea how many kings there were. Just because there are three gifts doesn't mean, some. you, you might give somebody three gifts. Are they just surmised, three people gave it to me? No. So we don't know, it probably was a large entourage. But the second way, it's a little bit an error, is they were not kings, they were wise men or magi. Now, what about these magi, what about them? Let me make it as plain as I can. Magi were straight out pagan men. They, um, they were men of astronomy, and astrology, when the line between those two things was, was very thin. They were magicians. They were fortune tellers of sorts. They were dream interpreters. They did study sacred writings of various religions and things like that, but they were pagan. Pharaoh had his magi, do you remember that? Nebuchadnezzar late, later had um, magi-like people in his cabinet. Somebody said, I can't remember who it was, one of the commentators I read, that when you think of the Magi, you, th- you should think of a cross between three people. Gandalf, who was a wizard. David Copperfield, who was a magician. And he, I had to Google this lady. Jean Nixon, anybody, anybody know who Jean Nixon is? She was an American psychic of like the 50s, 60s, and 70s. So a cross between a wizard, a magician, and a psychic. The, that was the Magi. These Magi doing their magi thing, these pagans, verse two, recount how they saw a star, which was clearly not just any old star, but a supernatural phenomena. You know, the Bible's full of supernatural phenomena, such as the pillar of cloud, remember, that led the Israelites by day, and the pillar of fire that led the Israelites by night. Well, here it is a special star. And we're not told how it all played out, but they likely did some research, these magi, and came across in the Jewish sacred writings, Numbers 24, 17, which says, a star shall come out of Jacob, know that verse? And a scepter shall rise out of Israel. 
They, they likely came across that. What is clear is that they knew little, but acted on the little they did know. Unlike the Bible guys who knew a lot, but acted nothing on the lot they knew. They knew little, these magi, and yet they take action on it. J.C. Ryle, years ago, he's, he's from the 1800s, was prompted to write in his commentary on this text, I know of no greater faith in the whole volume of the Bible than these magi who had a little bit of light and yet responded to that light. Now, how do they respond? They seek Jesus, and they exert great effort in doing so. We're not exactly sure how far they traveled, but, but a lot of people surmise they traveled anywhere from 800 to 1,000 miles to get to where they're at now. Do you know that if you were to drive down to an Atlanta, you'd only make it 720 miles? And by the way, you would drive on a nice freeway in a nice car or take an airplane. They're on stinky camels. Maybe 20 miles a day, up and down, long journey, perilous journey. There's highway bandits and all the rest. Took weeks, if not months. They put a lot of effort into seeking Jesus. And notice what happens when they get there. Well, hold on, hold on. When they did get there, they must have been incredulous and shocked to find out no one else is looking for Jesus. You are the cats with all the light. You're the ones with all the Bible knowledge. You're not even looking for him. You're not even looking for him. And we're these magi, and we're looking for him. And I just want to ask, I just, I, I got to ask you, do you seek the Lord with the light that you have? With the light that you have, do you seek the Lord or you are indifferent to that light? That's a good question, I think, right? Jesus warned about this. Remember when the, uh, some of the religious people came to him and said, Jesus, show me a sign. Like that, you know, I would say an equivalent today is people say, well, if God really wants to get a hold of my heart, he's gonna do something fantastical in my life. That's what they were saying. And Jesus said, no, no, no. And then he, he gives the example of the queen of Sheba. He said, the queen of Sheba traveled from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, one greater than she is here. And therefore, she will rise up at the day of judgment. We say, well, I didn't know I was supposed to see God. I had no idea. No, there is an inner conscience by the Spirit, Romans 1, that's given to you. There is the word of God, there's creation. Nobody in the world will ever have an excuse for not seeking God. Are you seeking God? Are you going after him with the light that you have? Well, when they hear from Herod that Jesus is in Bethlehem, they continue to seek Jesus. Verse nine, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And this is what happens. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Here is an incredible principle that Jesus said, those who respond to light, get more light. They respond step by step to the revelations that God gives them. And as they respond, they get greater revelation. And the same star that led them originally, that drove them to Numbers 24, 17, now rest over the very house where the baby is, which is, by the way, why we know the Magi probably weren't at the major scene. This is months, maybe a year or so later. But they responded to the light, and God gave them more light. Now look at, look at the, the, the growing response here. 
Verse 10. When they saw the star, what did they do? Oh, that's cool. Great. What's for dinner? What do they do, according to verse 10, when they see the star? They rejoice, it just stacked superlative after superlative after superlative. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That was some kind of response. And not only were their legs into the pursuit of Jesus, their hearts were as well. And what do they do? Verse 11 And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they did what? They fell down and worshiped him. Not not Mary, they didn't worship Mary. They worshiped him, baby Jesus. And here we see three things, as we close, that true worship entails, okay? The first thing that we see that true worship entails is submission. Verse 11, you didn't miss this, they fell down. They fell down before him. When a person truly worships Jesus, they submit to him, right? It's not only the raising of our hands, but it's the falling to our knees. Here's my life, Lord, and I'm gonna submit to you. True worship involves submission. That submission is reflected in their kneeling before this baby King Jesus. Number two, in giving, they bring, as you know, three gifts. When a person truly worships Jesus, they give. I'm not even talking about finances here. I'm talking about yourself. You give yourself to Jesus if you're truly worshiping him. And here, they give some gifts. We're not sure how aware they were of the significance of these three gifts, but I guarantee you this, the Holy Spirit who inspired all this, he was aware of the significance of the gifts they brought. What's the first gift they brought? Gold. Gold is the metal of kings, not not cast iron, right? Not aluminum. Even to this day, when an archaeologist finds the the tomb of an ancient king, say one of the ancient uh, pharaohs, they will often find that body encased in a veneer of gold. Why? Because gold is the metal of a king. This is a confession that Jesus Christ is king. Gold. What's the second gift they bring? Frankincense used in temple worship. Said to be so expensive that today if you were to have a bottle of it, a, bottle, a small bottle of it, it could cost upwards of $10,000. And this frankincense, this incense, points to Jesus Christ being our representative as our high priest. It says in Hebrews 4 that we can come boldly to the throne of grace because we have a high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who's passed into the heavens for us. So you got gold, he's the king, the Lord of glory. You got frankincense, he's our high priest, our representative. But now you got this third gift. What's the third gift? Let me, let me boil it down. Let me break it down. What would you think if Christmas morning you have a tree and somebody puts a gift under that tree they gave you and you open it up and you opened up and you find it's a, it's a bottle of embalming fluid. What do you think about that? That's kind of a dark gift. Myrrh was used to prepare bodies for death. The scripture tells us that when Jesus was buried, they took 100 pounds of myrrh and aloe to prepare his body. 
You know what this is a confession of? This is a confession that Jesus Christ would give his life for us. And we know the fullness of the story. He would give his life on a cross as a substitute for our sins. So what do these gifts foretell? That Jesus Christ is the perfect king, our true high priest, and the one who would give his life a ransom for many. So true worship involves submission, giving, and finally, don't miss this, verse 12, a new direction. Look at verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by what way? Another way. James Montgomery um, Boyce was so helpful on this. He says, quote, and so it is with us. If you surrender to Jesus, you will follow another path, and it will be a good one. A hard one at times next week, but ultimately a good one. I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians 5.17, that if any person's in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Old things are passing away, and all things become new. Submission, giving, new direction. So, there it is this morning. Three responses of the king. Imagine three doors. Door one, hostility. You are not gonna be my king. Is that your door? Door number two, indifference. Jesus is great and all that, and I believe the same stuff you do. You're a little too serious about it, though. There are a lot of people who can doctrinally say the right thing, but it has not made any kind of difference in the trajectory of their lives. They live just like everybody else, only with better doctrine. Is that you? Indifference. And then the third door is this, worship. Lord, I'm so grateful that you sent your son to die on a cross for my sins and then to rise again. And I don't have the power to follow you, and I shake it a lot, but I want to follow you, I want to trust you, and I, I'm, I'm just banking everything on you. Here I am, take me, please save me, and I want to follow you. So well, what is it for you? Is it hostility? Is it indifference? Or is it worship, surrender, giving, new direction? Sir Admiral Nelson was the lord of the British Navy many years ago. Nelson was warm, uh, known for being particularly kind and respectful and courteous to the foes that they would defeat on the high seas. The British Navy's in a naval battle with another, another Navy and they, they defeat them. And the vanquished foe, the, the admiral of the navy they just beat, steps on the quarter deck to surrender to Lord Admiral Nelson, wanting to play on what he's heard about his kindness and courtesy and his warmth. And he comes right on the quarter deck, sticking out his hand as if to shake his hand. And Nelson kept his hand at his side and just looked at him right in the eye. And he said, your sword before your hand your sword before your hand. To truly come to Jesus, you gotta turn in your sword. You gotta surrender. You gotta give yourself to him. 
unconditionally. That will grow, obviously, but you can't come saying, I still want to do my own thing, and I want your salvation. It doesn't work that way. Only then does he extend his nail-pierced hand. So what sword do you need to lay down? Money? Popularity? Some views that you know are out of whack with Scripture? How you're going to do life? Until you lay it down, there's no hand extended. And while you might celebrate Christmas, you might still be outside of the Christ of Christmas. But, John 1.11, he came unto his own, his own received him not, but as many as receive him, to them does he give the right to become the sons of God. Which are born not of blood, you don't get in because you're family, not of the will of man, nobody can declare you a Christian, nor the will of flesh, you can't work yourself there, but of God. And Jesus said that if you were to come to him, throwing your sword down, falling upon your knees, and asking for mercy, well, he is a friend of sinners, and he would save you. Anybody here like that? You need to be saved today? Uh, again, church is full of people who are just indifferent. Doctrinally sound, no difference on the trajectory of their lives. This is a clarion call to us, right? Is it not? And yet those who knew the least end up worshiping in truth and the most. And maybe you'd say, you know, I know the Lord, but I've, I've, I've kind of drifted into this indifference mode, life's so busy, and on and on and on. Maybe today you just pour your heart out to the Lord as we sing, and you say, afresh, I want to crown you with many crowns with the way I live my life. This is the word of God for us. Father, I ask that our hearts would be warmed with the love of Christ. Born a baby, but a king coming back. And right now, pass into the heavens that we might come boldly to the throne of grace. I pray for anyone here who needs to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They would do that this morning. They would be gloriously saved. As Brian prayed earlier, they would be translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of your love. And then, Father, I pray for the indifference that creeps into all of us, Lord. May that not be our permanent category, but may you just break open the smelling salts of the gospel and of your love so that we say, Lord, I'm so thankful you saved me. Here am I. Give me power to follow you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.